Friends, I wonder if you have uh, opened your Christmas gifts this morning. Did you get what you wanted? Are there any things that you will return? Yes. One of the things that people typically um, wish around Christmas is uh, peace and joy. Some people have even expressed that may the Christmas season bring you joy, comfort, and peace. Well, in, in some way, that's not true. In some other ways, it is true. In some way, it is not true that the season itself brings us joy, comfort, and peace. It's not the season that brings us these things. Uh, there are people who celebrate Christmas or who celebrate the season as a holiday uh, without thinking about the birth of Christ. And for such, there is no peace, joy, and comfort that the season brings. There's nothing about the season itself that brings, that has the power to bring comfort, joy, and peace. It is only those who celebrate Christ. It is only for those who, for whom Christ is, is at the center of this celebration that can experience joy, peace, comfort. And this morning as we look at the meaning and as we look at the, the, the significance of, of what Christians celebrate, I want to recognize that we live in a world where this season would be celebrated even after the rapture. Even, after, you know, even if Christ was not true, the world would, would still celebrate this season. There's something about this season that is going to go on and be celebrated. And yet there's something absolutely unique that happens for us as Christians as we think about the truth of what we celebrate around Christmas. This morning... I encourage us to open to the book of John, chapter 1, as we continue our, our mini-series that we started last week and we continue today from the book of John about the way John speaks about the significance of, of the incarnation of the Son of God. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning, uh, we encourage you to find one of the Bibles provided in the chairs in front of you. They're a black-color Bible. We encourage you to find this passage and read along with us. You may find it on page number 886. And as you are turning there, I just want to let you know, if you don't own a Bible or if you don't have an ESV Bible, the one that we use in our services, we would love for you to take our Pew Bible and take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it. And uh, we hope that you will find it enjoyable for your own spiritual edification. But let's go to the Lord and read John 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 18. Here's how John speaks about the beginning of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world 
was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord to give us His Spirit as we hear from Him. Father, we thank You that You have given us a light an unusual light, the light of your Son. And this morning, as we hear and, and as we hear the proclamation of, of your truth, of your light, Father, we pray that you would speak into our hearts. And Father, where there's darkness, we pray that you would bring light so that we might believe in the one whom you sent for us and for our salvation. In this name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, when we think about the birth of Jesus, there's many ways we can think about what this means, of what it symbolizes, of what it, what it signifies. But the Bible, through the Gospel of John, wants to encourage us and leads us to think about the birth of Jesus in the following categories. The Word became flesh. This is how John wants us to think about the incarnation of Jesus. Again, at verse 14, the Word became flesh. Now, last week, we considered how this Word is not just a concept, it's not just an idea, it's not just a philosophical notion, but the Word is actually a being, a being who was God. And a being who was with God. And last week we saw how this truth of being God and being with God is quite puzzling. How can something be God and yet be not identified or not identical to God? To be God and not be identical to God. And we saw how the doctrine of the Trinity is actually at the root of understanding the, the truth of, of Christmas. This, this, this Word, who is a being, He's God, and yet He's not identical to God because He is with God, was also the means of creation, the one who, who, through whom all things were created. There was never a time when the Word, the second being of the, of the triune God, there was never a time when this Word did not exist. The doctrine of the Trinity, as we saw last week, is crucial 
for making sense of Christmas. And if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to, if you were not here last week, I encourage you to go and listen to our sermon from last week and get a sense of what we mean by the Word. Well, this morning, we will continue that thought. And this morning, we want to focus on what happens to this Word, what happened to it. The Word became flesh. So this morning, we want to look at, at this act of the Word actually becoming flesh, and then we will look and see what's the side effect of that. What is the side effect of the Word becoming flesh? This morning, let's look at these two truths about the Word and about the side effect of that Word. Here's the first point. If you, if you are taking notes, uh, we will have two major points with a few sub-points, and I'll help you direct those so that you can make sense of, of this morning's message. The Word... Here's the first point. The Word became flesh. In a very plain way, very simple way, that's what the verse 14 declares for us. The one through whom all things were made, the one who has made all things, he decided to become a part of the very creation that he has made. Now, he became a part of this creation not by becoming a tree or a flower or a mountain, although there's beauty in those acts of creation. He became part of creation not by become, becoming an animal, although there's lovely things about the animal world. He became part of creation not even by becoming an angel, who would have some supernatural powers. Not even that. He chose to become part of creation by becoming flesh, by becoming a human being. And even though his entrance into our world was miraculous, he did not enter humanity as a grown-up man, ready just to do his mission, just to go in and go out. No, friends, he, he took his time. Before he could actually start his mission on earth, he waited about 30 years. He entered this creation as a baby. He experienced the development of, of what it means to be in a mother's womb. He experienced the limitations of being formed in the womb of a virgin. And after being born in the flesh, he experienced all the limitations of a baby, helpless, hungry, crying, needing others to feed him, needing others to teach him how to walk, needing others to teach him how to talk. He needed the protection of his parents. And the family he was born into was not a rich family. It was, not a, it was not a family that could provide all the comforts and extra nice things of life. It was a poor family. And shortly after his birth, he experienced the destiny of being a homeless refugee who had to run away from his own country because his life was endangered by a king who was committed to pursue him and to kill not only him but all the babies of that region. The eternal Word who created all things. He, he didn't just create all things. He didn't just sustain all things. He decided to enter the very world He created. 
and entered it as a baby. Friends, there's nothing more helpless in humanity than a baby. We are at no point in our human life more helpless than when we are babies. He became flesh and came into this creation as a baby. Friends, this is a staggering claim of Christianity, of no other religion in the world. Are we ever told that the God worshipped by the human beings, that that God actually became man? The incarnation of the Word is one of the absolute claims of and unique claims of the Christian religion. For, for Muslims, Allah never became man. And even though Islam makes a big deal about Jesus as being a big prophet, it does not and it cannot accept the truth that Jesus was actually God becoming man. In that sense, Christianity and Islam do not worship the same God. From the beginning of the, of the first century, there were people who struggled with the idea of accepting that Jesus is the Word who became flesh. Some people struggled with the idea that Jesus was God, that Jesus was the Word. Other people didn't have a problem with that, but they struggled with the idea that the Word, the God, became man, became flesh. We, we, we know from the first letter of, of 1 John that the incarnation of the Son of God was a matter um, that was not lightly to be treated. People who denied that Jesus, as God, came in the flesh were not able to be considered as part of the Christian family. As a matter of fact, John makes it very clear. He said that if someone is not able to affirm that Jesus came in the flesh, he is not from God. 1 John 4, 1 through 3 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, to deny the incarnation to deny the becoming a flesh of the eternal Word is to be guided by the Spirit of the Antichrist. And one of the characteristics of the children of God is that they accept and they receive this truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that He is real. Now, why is it significant? Why is it significant for us as Christians to proclaim this truth that the incarnation of the Word is real, that the Word became flesh. And here's a few reasons that we can think about biblically why for Christians the truth of the incarnation of Jesus is so fundamental to the Christian faith that if someone denies it, if someone rejects it, we are no longer, no, not able to call them as being part of the Christian family. Here's a few reasons. The first one, remember how John begins this text, in the beginning? And this, this phrase reminds us of Genesis, in the beginning God, that's how the Bible begins. Well, Genesis starts the story of, of, of the human creation, of the, of the creation of, of the universe, the physical universe. 
But just three chapters later, we find ourselves that man, who was created by God, has rebelled against God. And as, as, as a consequence of man's rebellion against God, God says from the beginning that if man would rebel against God, that would trigger death. And so when man did rebel against God, God came to declare the judgment of the consequence of our rebellion against him. And part of the judgment is that man has become separated from God, both physically and spiritually. God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Adam and Eve were no longer able to be in the place where God's presence was unmitigated. Man and woman had to be separated from God, both physically but also spiritually. And the spiritual separation means that death entered the human race. And not just death physically, but death spiritually. But in the midst of that judgment, God brings a, a message of hope. And in Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heed, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, in the Garden of Eden, God had given the prophecy that even though there is a judgment of death, the judgment of separation between God and man, God also put an enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And amazing, God declared this word of hope that there will be an offspring of the woman who shall crush the head of the serpent. Well, friends, in the birth of Jesus, Jesus, the Word, had to become flesh so that Jesus would be the offspring of the woman who would eventually crush the head of the serpent. It was impossible. There's no other way for this prophecy that God had declared from the very beginning of creation. Jesus had to become flesh so that he would be the offspring of Eve and crush the head of the serpent. Another reason why Jesus had to become flesh and not why the Word had to become a human being was so that He could take upon Himself the judgment that our rebellion has triggered. In Isaiah 53, another prophecy of the Old Testament, God says about His servant, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The second member of the triune God would become human. He would take upon himself human flesh and not just take human flesh upon himself, he would become human flesh so that he could take upon himself our struggles and experience our griefs. Oh friends, he experienced the betrayal of one of his closest disciples. He experienced the denial and the abandonment of one of his closest friends. Then he experienced the false accusations. Then he experienced the injustice of the Roman court. Then he experienced the pain and the violence and the shame of his crucifixion. And remember when Job went through the pain and suffering that he experienced unjustly, if we will, with no particular human cause. When Job received his suffering, and he, he felt the 
the, the crushing load of his suffering. At one point, Job says that he preferred that his day of birth had perished because the weight of his suffering was so heavy that he had preferred not to have been born. Friends, all of us, humanly speaking, we would seek to rather escape the path of suffering for our lives. And we would do anything to protect our children from it. But now, when we look at God and His Son, Jesus became flesh exactly for this reason, so that He could take upon Himself our sorrows and our griefs. And worse than the physical suffering that Jesus experienced, Jesus became man so that He could take upon Himself the separation between us and God. Friends, only by being born of the flesh, only by becoming a human being, could the eternal Son of God, who was always with God, who nothing could separate them from each other, only by taking flesh, and only in the flesh, could Jesus have experienced the forsakenness of God. Ultimately, He became flesh in order to be the true substitute for our rebellion and sin. So the eternal Word, dear friends, had to be God, and also the eternal Word had to become man in flesh in order to be the offspring of the woman and in order to be able to crush the head of the devil, in order to be a true substitute for the rebellion of mankind and to take upon himself our griefs and sorrows. But John gives us another reason why Jesus became flesh. He became flesh so he could dwell with us. So he could dwell with us. So the eternal God could dwell with his people. Remember Moses? Remember the story when Israel came out of Egypt and God, after, after God rescued them out of Egypt, God gave in the book of Exodus um, instructions about how to build a tabernacle so that God could dwell in the midst of his people? If you read the book of Exodus, the longest, most tedious, and perhaps most boring, and perhaps more, most attention-disturbing part of the book of Exodus is all the details of how to build a sanctuary. It feels like an instruction manual for, for a, a tool that you were to build. Who reads instruction manuals? But all of that is given, all of that is given because God wanted to be with His people. And God cared about the tent in which God would dwell with them. And, and if you read the whole book of Exodus, and you finally get to chapter 40, and you read the final four, five verses of the book of Exodus, you get to see that despite the sinfulness of Israel, they still made it to build up the temple. And then the, what happened was the glory of God dwelt in the midst of that temple, of that tabernacle. Because Moses, Moses at one point is scared that because of the sin of the people, God would no longer go with them that God would just send one of his messengers. He says, God, I'm not going with you. You are a stiff-necked people. And Moses says, God, don't, don't not come with us. If you don't go with us, if you're not with us, we're not going to go. 
How will people know that we are your people if your presence is not with us? Moses is, is begging God. Moses is pleading with God. Don't leave us alone. We need your presence. And God decides to go with his people. And they're able to erect the temple or the, the tabernacle. They're, they're building it up. And the end of Exodus, the five verses, the last five verses declare that indeed the glory of the Lord came down. Why? Because his presence was there with them. And Moses tells us, Lord, show us your glory. But as we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we know that Israel continued to sin. And the glory of God eventually, after all their sinning, after all their stiff-necking, eventually God said, I am taking away the temple. I am taking away the very symbol of my presence among you. And not only, not only that, I will take you out of this land. I will create another separation, another symbol of separation because you have been so stiff-necked. And worse than that, in the book of Ezekiel that describes this separation between God and his people, we see an image of the glory of God departing from the temple in stages. That's what the exile meant. The glory of God had left the temple, had left Jerusalem, had left the land. In the book of Zechariah, after the exile was completed and people returned back to the land and brought, God brought them back. Yet still the glory of the Lord did not return the same way that they had expected. And in the book of Zechariah chapter 2, there's a promise that God says, I will dwell with you. I will come to you and dwell with you. And here's centuries later, John declares that in Jesus, the eternal word became flesh. Why? So that God could dwell with his people. That's why Jesus, the eternal word, had to become flesh. But what's the side effect of all that? The side effect of all that is, John says, we have seen his glory. When the presence of God comes to dwell with his people, just as in the Old Testament, we also see that that presence of God is accompanied by his glory. And John sees it. The disciples see it. So for the rest of this message this morning, I want us to focus on what does it mean when, when John says, and we have seen his glory. Because friends, the presence of God is always glorious. We have seen his glory. Friends, there will be four subpoints to the second point of the sermon. We have seen his glory. There's something, there's something unique about the human beings that uh, we love to see glory. We love to see greatness. We love to see the flashiness. We love to see the, the, the amazing things. We love to see those things that amaze us. One of the elements that distinguish us from other human, uh, from other creation, uh, created beings, from animals or rocks or things, is that we love glory. We love to have it. 
we love to seek it and we love to enjoy it. God has made us to be glory-consuming beings, to appreciate glory and to seek it. In John 7, 18, Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. As human beings, we seek human, we seek glory. But all the Bible tells us that because we have fallen rebellious, we have be become the rebellious of God and against God, the side effect of that rebellion is that we have fallen short of glory. We were made with glory. We were made to share in the glory of God. But because of our sin, we have fallen short of the glory of God. And one of the side effects of our sin and our corruption is that we no longer seek the glory of God. We seek our own glory. Now, we still seek glory, but we seek our glory. And we, when we find it, we enjoy it. Now, man's glory is enjoyable. Man's glory is fun. Man's glory is alluring. But it's temporal. It never fully satisfies. That's why we always are seeking after it. And when we get it, we feel like there's still something else to get. We're still something else to, to seek. We are in constant search for glory because we don't have it of our own. But when we think of God, God is always glory. And wherever God manifests himself, wherever his presence is manifested, there's always glory with him. Actually, in the Old Testament, the notion of glory is that it's a visible manifestation of God's self-disclosure. Wherever the presence of God was manifested, there, there was glory. That's why in the incarnation of Jesus, when God the Son comes to dwell with us, John says, and we have seen his glory. Now, glory, the glory of Jesus didn't start with his birth. The glory of Jesus, we are told, existed with him from eternity beginning. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays to his father before his crucifixion, and Jesus says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory Jesus had with God the Father. He never sought his own glory. He always had the glory of God with him. He shared the glory of God. And even in this prayer, Jesus seeks the glory of God once again. Then he's more in verse 25 of John 17. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me. Jesus prays. This is amazing. Jesus prays to the Father that God would enable that those who follow Jesus would be able to see the glory which Jesus had with the Father from the beginning of the world. Oh, friends, think of that as a Christmas gift. This destiny, this promise that God, that Jesus wants his Father to allow us to be with Jesus so that we would see the glory that Jesus had from the beginning of the world or from, from before the world ever existed. We are beings destined for glory. 
if only we would follow Jesus. But John tells us that in between glory past, eternity past, and the glory eternity future, there's also a glory in between while he was here on earth. And this is a glory that John has seen. It's not the glory of the past, eternity, nor the glory of the future, eternity. It's this glory that Jesus experienced and showed us while he was on earth. Well, four things about this glory of Jesus while he was on earth. There's four subpoints, very briefly, characteristics of this glory of Jesus while on earth. It was a unique glory. It was a unique glory. It says in verse 14, uh, as of the only Son from the Father, we can see God's glory in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can see God's glory in how He delivered His people from, from slavery. But friends, in Jesus, John and his disciples have seen a unique form of the glory of God because it was displayed uniquely through the only Son from the Father. There was only one Son that was uniquely the only begotten Son from the Father. And he came to earth once. He lived among us for 33 years. And the people who have seen him have seen his glory as a unique glory, as of the only Son from the Father. It's a unique glory. You and I don't get to see that glory now because we haven't seen it physically. We haven't been there to touch him. We haven't been there to experience him. John and the disciples have experienced that unique glory. But not only that, there's something else about the, this glory. It's a glory that is full of grace and truth. Now, people today think about grace and truth as opposites. You either have grace or you have truth. People fall in the, tr in, in the extreme of being either full of grace or full of truth. But in Jesus, we see a glory that is both full of grace and both full of truth. The glory of Jesus both confronts us with our darkness, the truth of our darkness, and offers the way to escape it. The glory of Jesus doesn't just amaze us, but also confronts us. It does both. I uh, remember the, the story of Rosaria Butterfield in her biography uh, called uh, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She gets to the point where she is starting, after reading the Bible quite a lot, she gets to a point of realizing, um, or people start realizing that she really starts to change. Now, she had no idea that she started to change. She thought she's still about the same, but people started realizing something's going on with Rosaria because she's no longer the same. So a friend confronts her, and at first she denies it. It's like, no, I'm the same person. I, no, I, I'm the same. And, and the friend says, no, you're not. And finally, Rosaria says, all right. She says this, what if I, what if I would say that I am beginning to believe that Jesus is real? is a real and risen and loving and judging Lord, and that I am in big trouble. Rosaria came to believe that the story about Jesus is not just this fairy tale, that he is real. And because he's real, unreconciled sinners are in big trouble. The truth and the grace. The truth is that we're in trouble apart from Christ. 
the graces that those who receive Christ are given the right to become children of God, reconciled with God. So the glory of God manifested in Jesus is full of grace and truth together. The glory of Jesus is also, thirdly, a shielded glory. A shielded glory. Not everyone has seen it. Even though everyone has seen Jesus' miracles, only the disciples and some of the followers really believed in him. And with a faith that really changed their lives. Some of the miracles that Jesus made caused a lot of people to get amazed. Many crowds believed and started following Jesus, but, but it was a superficial kind of faith. It was not really a surrender to his truth, to who he really was. They were still pursuing their own glory. They still wanted to be fed by Jesus. They still just wanted to be healed by Jesus, but they didn't really follow Jesus or entrust themselves to this man who was glorious. They saw in Jesus a man who was a great teacher, a great healer, but nothing more than that. Friends, the glory which Jesus came to show us is a glory that calls us to believe in him, not simply with a superficial faith, but by entrusting our lives in his hands, a faith that causes us the willingness to change our direction in life, a faith that has seen that this Jesus is glorious and for the sake of his glory, we are willing to surrender our own pursuits, our own glory, and seek him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, when they saw the miracles of Jesus, they didn't see the glory of Jesus and were amazed by the glory of Jesus. They saw the power of Jesus, but they chose to turn against him and call his sentence of death. Even though they've seen God's mighty acts, they have turned their backs against him. Others have just ignored him. And the same is true today, friends. People may see the glory of Jesus, and yet that glory is shielded from their eyes. They may see claims of greatness, but they don't really believe it. They see claims and they see eyewitness accounts of what Jesus has done on earth, and they will say, Oh, they're just stories. Oh, they're just nice things to have around you when you need it. There are still people today who hear this truth, who hear of God's great works, and for them, they don't see any glory because that glory is shielded from their eyes. Friends, if these words describe you this morning, and you feel like you don't see anything special about this Jesus Perhaps you think he's just a human tradition, nice thing to experience once a year. Oh, friends, you are still missing the glory of Jesus. Friends, if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to ask God and tell him one prayer. Ask God to show you his glory. Ask God to take away the darkness that hides this glory. Ask God to take away that hardness that may cause you not to want to see that glory. Ask God to take away that hardness that makes you unable to see it. Ask God like Moses asked God, God, show me your glory. And there's something else 
If that's your prayer and desire, I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. You'll find me in the foyer. I'd love to talk to you about it. There's nothing greater for us to experience at this Christmas season today. If you have not experienced this glory of Jesus and have seen it, if so far he has been just oblique and, and, and colorless and sort of fading, ask God. There's nothing greater that you can walk away with today than being able to see for the first time the glory of Christ. But, but there's a final point about this glory that John tells us. The glory of Jesus in this gospel is most surprisingly manifested in his death and exaltation. John 12, 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know what he was, Jesus was talking about? He was talking about his death. And how does he talk about his death? He talks about it as a moment of glorification. John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It's amazing that in John's gospel, the most, the pinnacle, the climax of the glory of God shown in Jesus Christ is not his birth, but it's his death. This is why the glory of Jesus is a shielded Jesus. Who would ever think that someone's death on the cross would be a manifestation of God's glory? The glory of God is manifested in Jesus' death because through his death, God is able both to punish sin and make it possible for sinners to be drawn to God. Through the death of Jesus, sinners who turn to God in repentance and faith can be declared righteous before God even though they have not done one righteous thing on their own. The glory of God is manifested in Jesus in his death because the holy God, who could never overlook even one sin, is now able to declare sinners forgiven and give them eternal life if only they would turn to God by placing their trust in Jesus. Oh, friend, if you've never responded to Christ, by repenting of your sin and by placing your trust for salvation on Jesus. I encourage you today, do it. Respond to God and to the salvation that he came to offer us. The glory of God has been manifested for us ultimately in Jesus' death. That's why, dear friends, today when we celebrate this, the day of the birth of Jesus, when we think about the glory of God manifested through this word becoming flesh, we don't simply stop at celebrating his birth. We're also going to experience and celebrate his death and partaking of the Lord's Supper. The passage before us presents us these truths, that Jesus is the word who became flesh, but also that Jesus is the word who showed us the glory of God. And we have seen that this glory is unique. We have seen that this glory is full of grace and truth. We have seen that this glory is shielded, a shielded glory. We have seen that this glory is seen most supremely in Jesus' death. Because now God both punishes sin and reconciles sinners to himself. I love how one pastor said this about 
the coming of God at Christmas in Jesus. A God who is only holy, a God who is only holy, would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we all pull ourselves together, that we would be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with Him. On the other side, a deity that is an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come down to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. The biblical God, however, is infinitely holy, so our sin could not be shrugged off. It had to be dealt with. But he's also infinitely loving. He knows that we could never climb up to him. So he came down to us. Would you pray with me? Father, our words are too weak to express our gratitude for the true depth of what we should feel towards this gift of Christ to us. Thank you that you have come to dwell with us through the incarnation of your son, Jesus. Thank you that through his dwelling among us, you have allowed us and enabled us to see your glory. May we be people who boast in your glory and seek it above ours. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.